Welcome to La Ventanita. I'm your host, Carlos Frias, the Miami Herald food editor, joined again after a brief break by my co-host, Amy Reyes. Hi. Did you Hi. miss me? We did. Although you got to admit, Alex did a pretty great job. She did. She was great. And I uh, thank her for filling in for me while I was gone. I know you were flying home on that airplane, sweating bullets. I was like, oh, my God, they're going to replace me. Be bad. Be bad. No, we traded We traded one white lady for another one. So. Yeah. <laughs> you got you a duplicate. <laughs> we, we did. I was like, wait, wait, let's cast someone for this role. Who do we have in the newsroom? Who's the other white lady here? I know. I didn't, we didn't interview about her white girl stomach. Or whether I was going to ask. She didn't go into any details like I do. Yeah, no, we had to. I, I wanted to break her in softly in, cl- in case know. we ever need her to come back. You know, I didn't want to scare her off. So, well, I have to back. say, on my vacation, I I did a really good job with my my white girl stomach in Michigan. Mm-hmm. But I have never had. I've never been to um, a seafood boil, and so my sister, like, she organized this like really amazing seafood boil. She bought this giant like cauldron, and it has this little thing underneath to heat up the water and stuff. And she got uh, lobster, shrimps, clams, corn, potatoes. And she boiled it in this like, like Louisiana spicy Cajun sauce. Like a, uh, yeah. Like a big it crab was boil. Like, dude, my that face sounds amazing. was burning. <laughs> <laughs> my face was burning. Well, did you, were you standing over it? Like uh, getting a facial kind of like uh, getting the steam in your face and no, but like the, getting the up thing- in there. The thing that was the most painful to eat because everything was really good. Like I even ate, I even ate the lobster. I'll always eat scrimps. What do you, you know? mean I don't, even ate the lobster? Well, I told you I don't love crustaceans. <laughs> I don't love seafood in that. I like I fish, but I don't love things in shells or in rocks or any you know creepers in of the rocks. ocean. <laughs> <laughs> creepers of the ocean. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of creepers. Uh, yeah, but um, you don't like to work that hard for your food. I do not. You want it delayed. I want it bladed and presented on the table. No bones. No, no bones. Bo- <laughs> no bones, no shells. No. Don't make me work. But okay. she put them all in the vat. And then you know what she did? She just dumped it in the middle of the table. And yeah, we ate like like animals. <laughs> yeah. Just like, uh, it's like, uh, what is it? The Fantastic Mr. Fox, where everybody is very erudite and, you know, yes. like very human-like. And then the food comes and everybody's. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it was like. But That's the thing so that was the most painful to eat, I have to admit, was the corn. Because the corn, like it was, it, it really absorbed all of the Cajun the spices, seasoning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And then you have to eat it like, you know, and it gets all over your face. Oh, that sounds amazing, actually. It sounds fantastic. <laughs> it was good, but I couldn't stop myself. But my yeah, face no, hurt. The, the, uh, I mean, that's like a, that's like a big thing. The big peel and eat thing. I mean, I got to say that the peel and eat thing is not a big thing in the Latin community. Mm-mm. You know, that's a, that's, that's a white people thing. I think for the most part, the peel and eat shrimp. It, like, peel it and might eat be thing? like an American thing. Cause it's an American I, thing. Yeah, I feel like it's the thing that happens in different communities in the United States. But um, I have to admit that I don't like working that hard to get my food. No, no, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's a thing. But I think that's a that's you can get by with less food because it takes you so long to eat it that you will kind of get full by the time you get to your third or fourth piece. And yeah, it's like, probably oh, like the theory great. behind chopsticks. Like you have to work so hard <laughs> to bring the food to your mouth. You appreciate Slowly your bite more. in pieces. You can't just shovel it in your mouth. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, I, I'm glad that you had a, a good eating break and that your white girl stomach didn't act up. Yeah. Thank you. But did you get did you get out to your Detroit favorite? Did you get out to get some Buddy's Pizza? 
This was the first vacation that I've taken in Michigan where Buddy's was not on the menu. Wow. However, we have discovered Mm -hmm. that there is a place in Miami, specifically in the kingdom of Kendall, Mm -hmm. that has a very similar style of pizza to Buddy's Pizza in Detroit, which is called Vice City Pizza. Right. We're looking at Buddy's Pizza right now. That's Buddy's Pizza. This is not Vice City Pizza. I don't know if we have a photo of Vice City Pizza, but... um, so Buddy's Pizza is a square Detroit style pizza that has like the, the cheesy edges, which are like the it's like the the golden the golden uh, ticket. You want the the corner pieces because then you get two cheesy edges. You it's get like to brownies. Eat it's like people you know, like you want the brownie edge. I mean, if you're a exactly. corner person, if you're a corner piece person. And the, the crust is really fluffy, like a focaccia, mm-hmm. except um, Buddy's Pizza started off as like a real, you know, like a kind of divey local pizza spot in Detroit on the east side at like Conant and Six Mile. And my family used to go there every, like every week, basically. Like we lived in Buddy's Pizza. I went there for my eighth grade graduation. <laughs> I went there for like, my my, my brother um, went there <laughs> for his... <laughs> Like wedding announcement, like we would go there for <laughs> we would go there for all the things, uh-huh. like everything. We would go to Buddy's awesome. for like any any occasion. You'd go to Buddy's, and um, it, it gives me kind of a Frankie's Pizza vibes. Like I get that kind of like place has been around for a long time, and obviously Frankie's Pizzas is our is like Miami's OG square pizza. Right, I've never been to Frankie's before, but it probably is a similar thing because. Now that I've had Vice City, I can put Buddy's kind of in the perspective in the whole like uh, pantheon the range. Uh-huh. Of, of pizza. <laughs> yeah. The spectrum. It's on. The, we're on the spectrum. It's on the spectrum of square pizza, and mm-hmm. I do recognize that the the affinity that I have for Buddy's is probably ninety five percent nostalgia and five percent it's good. Taste. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the the ingredients that they use may may or may not be like super primo. And I felt like when I tried the Vice City pizza, uh, square pizza, I was like, okay, they, they're doing something here. Like this tastes like yeah. really fresh, like that they, they really, they're doing the most. Buddy's Pizza, amazing. But it's one of those things that like, if you bring somebody who didn't grow up on it, they might be like. You know, you know how I know, you know how I know you missed Buddy's Pizza on that trip? Because I went to Vice City yesterday and I ordered some pizza and I, I took a I took a picture of it and I sent it to you and I was like, "Hey, I'm having Detroit style pizza." And within the hour, you and your kids. I was were like, "Let's go, let's go, children. This is the thing that exists in the because you had told me about that place earlier." Yeah, I've and been I was to go like, there "For a long time." I didn't yeah. know it was Detroit style pizza. I thought it was just like regular pizza, and so I was like, "You know," and it's been sitting there inside what Ave Maria is that the name Abi, of the Ave Maria? Ave Maria for about a year. For about they they were one of those pandemic babies. And as actually shout out to uh, Charlie Crespo, who is a kind of like man about town foodie guy, uh, like eater, not foodie, because I hate I hate that term has become more precious. And I, I think he's more like an out and about out and about uh, eater. And uh, and he loves that place because apparently they make a, um, a gluten free version that his, his wife uh, depends on. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and I, I, I went over there and it was it was really good. Yeah, definitely focaccia style. And then he uses really good ingredients. He uses yeah. that. That uh, Bianco tomatoes, I'm going to give him, drop some knowledge on you. So that this guy, Chris Bianco is like the pizza master. Like he makes some of America's best pizza. I think he was nominated for James Beard if he didn't win one uh, just this past year. Um, but he has like special San Marzano tomatoes grown for him. I want to say in Italy, like in a special region of San Marzano, because you can do that. You can be like 
grow tomatoes for me in this patch and I will buy all the tomatoes that grow from here. Oh, wow. And, uh, and he, so he, you know, they're canned and imported and it's got his name on it. And it's fantastic. I want to say it's the same ones that old Greg's uses. I mean, this is like the top tier. So those are the kind of tomatoes that are used in Vice City Pizza or in this yeah. other guy's pizza? In, okay, In Vice City and in Old Greg's, both of them. And, and okay, because so I have to say, I think that Buddy's Pizza is special, but I don't know if it's that extra. <laughs> you know what I'm no, saying? Like, I don't no, know if they, yeah. I don't know if they go that hard at Buddy's. I feel like they do, they do some cool stuff, but like, I don't think that it's like, it's not that pressure it's not that no, special it's fine it's fine but that's that's the spectrum right like yeah yeah like this is your thing and then you can go a little bit to the right and make it a little bit more artisanal uh, yeah you know what i mean uh you can go to the left and it ends up pizza hut right yeah like, exactly like, the thing the thing about um vice city that i really liked i had the um i think it's called the og cheese or something and that had yeah. that had the tomato sauce and that, that was delicious yeah. but then i had the the pepperoni Oh, and I, I think it's got a different name. I can't remember what they call it, but the it's one the that has pepperonis on it, yeah, it's got has a like some name. kind of like sweet drizzle. Yes, it's a honey. It's a Calabrian, Calabrian pepper uh, honey that they drizzle over the top. So they make like Dude. a spicy, like a hot honey, and they and it's so subtle. It's, it's yes. so subtle that I was like, wait a minute, there's something sweet on my fingers. What is yes. that? It's yeah, just that's the, that's the new thing though. A lot of people are doing that. The combined, as a matter of fact, 11th Street Pizza, which is opening up a second location down the street from them, uh, has a hot honey. Old Greg's has a hot honey. It's the new, it's the new, uh, uh, cauliflower rice, or it's the new, uh, okay, uh, it's the new know, Brussels sprouts. Yes, the new Brussels sprouts, exactly. And, and no hate because it's delicious. No, no, I like Brussels sprouts. But everybody, you know, but you know, certain things do, certain trends do, uh, uh um, uh, coalesce. And that's yeah. one of them. No, and I, I don't like, I'm for- not mad at it. I would like for the the eggplant trend to come because eggplant's good, man. If no, you do it right, eggplant can be really good. Like yes, you need to okay. go try the ratatouille at, at La Petite But not Maison. on a pizza. But not a, we're talking about pizza, not on a pizza, right? They could put eggplant on pizza. I bet okay. there's a way. I guess. I, I guess. support this. I guess. Oh, while I was gone, you know what else happened? What'd you do? What else? A whole happened? lot of bad bunny. I was not here for any of the crazy <laughs> bad bunny. Ay, bendito, tengo restaurante nuevo. <laughs> Well, his new restaurant is called Gecko. Yeah, he was taking a lot of selfies saying cheese. (laughs) Well, it's open and now there's another place that Miami can go in hopes that Bad Bunny will show up one day. I'm sure that that's going to happen every week. Yeah, it sure it Not. should. Especially after after his Bugatti got bumped into by uh, by some guy in a in a Lamborghini. Lamborghini Urus. That is tragic. That is tragic. Yeah, that's like that's like uh, probably over a million dollars in cars, uh, giving each other a slight little kiss there, a right outside kiss. in front of them. Yeah, and you, you can't be riding around with your Bugatti all scratched up. And no, stuff. that's no. you can't do that. You can't do that. But that's a car you fake. So you know, good luck to Bad Bunny. That restaurant, I I'm too old for that that clubstaurant thing. That ain't for me. I mean, maybe by some happenstance, I'll end up there at some point, but I just, I can't imagine that ain't for me. I would go, I'm going, I would go just to see if Bad Bunny shows up. You're still trying to be young. (laughs) Well, no, it's not that I'm trying to be young. I just want to see if Bad Bunny shows up. Go buy, buy concert tickets. (laughs) I'm not like, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm Kendall Rich. I'm not, (laughs) not Bad Bunny ticket rich. (laughs) I'm not Bad Bunny ticket rich. (laughs) Yeah. It's more like, uh, you know, whatever. Siri, play Bad Bunny. 
<laughs> yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> also, I could see I really appreciated the whole concert via everyone else's Instagram. So mm-hmm. I don't I feel caught up. Yeah, I no, like I felt I, like I had enough perreo in my life. I did. Uh, after that, after that. So thanks. Thank you for, for Miami for bringing that to life. Exactly. Um, we also had uh, a thing that Connie wrote about, you know, my favorite local bar, Union Beer, was like Yelp's favorite, pay, best place in Florida to drink. Uh-huh. Uh, which, which I thought was cool. Um, that is cool. And uh, it's funny because I get a text over the weekend, or last Thursday, I get a text, and it's from Alex Lackamore, friend of the program, uh, you know, the musical director of Hamilton, and he's like taking a selfie with Panolo because Thursday nights is when they do their pan combite at, at Union. And uh, and it's just like a local place, man. It's pretty. It's like a cool local place, and I hope I'm glad that they got some love. That is awesome. Yeah, so that was cool. Oh yeah, so I think that we have jabbered long enough because we have I'm, jabbered. I being the sandwich freak that I am, uh, as Connie says, uh, I'm excited about our guest today. Uh, our guest today is Jeff Hauk. So more than a year ago, Jeff told me he was working on a book that would shock the world's understanding of where the Cuban sandwich came from. Uh, yes, we're talking about the Cuban sandwich again, uh, the sandwich with its own Wikipedia entry, uh, um, the one from Tampa. Uh, and Miami people love to debate. Uh, but Jeff uh, and the lead author on this book went beyond the debate. Uh, to write the new book, uh, it's called The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers. Uh, they looked at primary sources, advertisements, restaurant menus, and newspaper articles dating back to the 1870s. Uh, the result, two new cities have entered the chat, as the kids say, uh, Havana and New York. Ooh. Uh, but Jeff's origin story is just as interesting. Uh, he's a former food writer, editor, and restaurant reviewer for the late Tampa Tribune. Pour one out. Uh, and his work's been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and he started his journalism career, if I'm not mistaken, in Alaska. Uh, and he's truly one of the most gifted writers I know uh, who applies his excellent journalism skills to food writing. Uh, but now he tells this, the food stories of Florida's oldest restaurant, the Columbia. Uh, and he's its marketing man. Uh, but he's not going to spin us today. Today, we're going to talk sandwiches, my favorite topic. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much for that introduction. I appreciate it. How are you guys today? Well, I'm great, man. I'm great. I have been uh, eager to talk to you again in person since we, it's funny, we've known each other. We had known each other uh, from online, like in each other's work for years. Right. And, and then I went to Tampa, uh, ready to hate on Tampa, uh, because that's what we do in Miami. And I had the nicest time uh, at a great restaurant, one of the ones that that you represent also mm-hmm. uh, as, uh, as it's marking. I That's correct. Say. Remind me of the name. It's called Ulele. Ulele. And, uh, and it's, it was fantastic. And we had such a great time and we did. you got to meet my boy, Ollie. I did. You, you, you travel with some fun friends. I will say that. Yeah, I do. I got, I got to give it up for the, for my traveling buddies for sure. But, uh, but no, so I, I was looking forward to, to this book ever since you mentioned yeah. it last year. I have been yeah. like, like I just put that on the back burner and I've been watching that and slowly stirring it for, the, for a year, waiting for it to come out. That's the way it felt writing it. So, you know, it's, I'm, I'm used to daily journalism and restaurant marketing and it's bang, bang, bang and adrenaline, adrenaline and book, uh, book writing is not that. This is the first <laughs> part, project where I've been a part of it from start to finish. So uh, I, I kind of realized what it took and it takes a different discipline. But um, we're, you know, the three of us, Andy uh, Hughes and Barbara Cruz and myself are extremely proud of it. You know, um, it's uh, it's been an enlightening project for some. I, I think it's a great exercise in general 
for someone to think they know about a subject and then dive deeper to prove how little you know or how many new facets there are to something. How um, did you guys how did you guys divide up the labor since there's three of you working on it? So Andy has written a couple of books, all historical based about um, uh, food history. And he did a book called uh, From uh, Saloons to Steakhouses. It was basically Tampa's history told in the framework of food. And so he had this 50,000 word chapter that didn't fit in that book. And he came to me and he said, listen, I, I think we need some profiles to wrap around it because it was essentially an academic book at that point, a research book. I was like, hell yeah, I mean, I'm in on all the way. And then he uh, he had invited Barbara Cruz, uh, who was born in Cuba, uh, immigrated to Miami and now lives in Tampa and is a, a professor at University of South Florida. And so, you know, uh, Barbara clearly handled the, uh, the bilingual aspects of it. And, um, you know, I had... Uh, I wrote profiles of uh, many people, but including uh, several South Florida um, sources like Norman Van Aken and Michelle Bernstein, who I'd known when I was doing full-time food writing. And, you know, the best part about it is, is that, um, you know, it looks like a single topic, but there's so many stories within a, that, that frame. Um, just talking to Michelle Bernstein about how essentially the Cuban sandwich was used as a babysitter by her mother, when she would go shopping, she would sit her at a counter with a Cuban sandwich and, uh, and a drink. That's, that's one of my favorite stories. Those little profiles, I didn't really get in, get them, get into them. Uh, and yeah. when I was writing kind of a review of the book. Um, but those were some of my, that was one of my favorite stories, how like Michelle Bernstein's mom would go shop, sit her at, sit her at the end of the edge of the counter yeah. and they would give her a Cuban sandwich while she, you know, in the time it took her to eat that sandwich, she would get her shot. It was the most delicious pacifier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what? What I love about that book, about this book, um, is that it's it's annotated. There are ten annotated pages, and because it has a scholarly background, but it doesn't mm -hmm. read like that. I hope so. Uh, it, it reminded me of there's this there's a scholarly article written um, by Ray Ar Arsenal, okay. uh, who wrote this uh, article called. Uh, the end of the long hot summer, the air conditioner and Southern culture. And I, I referred, to, I referred to it when I wrote the story the, about La Ventanitas, where mm -hmm. the Ventanitas came from, how air conditioning played a role. And I remember reading that, and I was like, this doesn't read like an academic paper, although it was cited, uh, you know, uh, thoroughly. Uh, but it was like this very wonderful prose that just took you through this thing and made it so uh, like delectable, you know. And I, that's how I felt about this book, like. You, you get some history. Yeah. You get like necessary Cuban history without it being pedantic, you know, without it getting into, sure. um, uh, you know, all the like boring details and stuff. And it was just enough to like, it always kept the through line of the sandwich and how does the sandwich come into play? I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Andy was very cognizant of not, not dragging it through every last nook and cranny of, um, Cuban uh, political history and and you know all of the upheaval that that went along with that. Uh, funny enough, air conditioning played a role in the development of the sandwich because, you know, especially in Tampa where um, cigar workers were the prime consumers, um, you know, everything on the sandwich is shelf stable. Right, that's why it doesn't right. have vegetation. That's why it doesn't have mayonnaise. So you know you, you can. You can talk pretty much about any topic about what it's like to live in Florida or South Florida and find some thread that goes through the Cuban sandwich. There's really no other food stuff that I know that has 
a political angle, uh, a geographical story, an ingredient story, artisanal story. Um, you know, it's uh, people can say, well, that, you know, Philly cheesesteak, uh, this one's great or that one's great. But that's really an argument between two restaurants. The hot dog, it's Chicago versus whatever's in the water in New York. Um, you know, but this one is is so deep. And it's not like somebody was sitting there with a pen in the early days saying, we're going to invent the mixed dough. It's going to become the Cuban. And then it's going to branch off. We should probably write all this down. <laughs> um, you know, Andy went to the nth degree to research all these things. And, you know, as, as much of an archive as we could find or what was available, we know that there's stuff uh, on the island that God knows when anybody's going to get to it. And we really approached it from a standpoint of here's what we could find now. And, you know, but the best part about it, I thought from my standpoint was writing the profiles to go with it because it shows that it's a living, breathing um, organism. It is still changing. You know what it, what it reminds me of that the, the, the ongoing Cuban sandwich battle, it reminds me of the who invented uh, who gets credit for inventing arepas right. and pisco. Because Chile and Peru go back and forth about who invented Pisco. I mean, obviously, Peru has definitely won the argument in the sense right. that, like, we, we think of it as a Peruvian drink. But the, Chile, the Chilenos are like, you know, uh -uh. They'll, 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 yeah, they'll go to town for it. And same thing with Arepas, the Colombians and Venezuelans. They go, they'll go to the mat for that. So I, I kind of love that that we have this kind of thing that exists. But but your, your book didn't really get into that. It was really more like, let's look at primary sources. Let's look at... Let's look at where this comes from. And I guess what surprised you the most when you, when, you know, through Andy's research, like what surprised you, what challenged you the most when you saw uh, about its background? You know, I, I, I was most surprised, I think, by the depth of what he was able to find, like you said, from primary sources, from finding menus, from finding advertisements, you know, the fact that it, it, it went beyond being um, just um, a menu item, it was a way of life in Havana. It was something that the nobility enjoyed. It was the sandwich you brought home when you knew your wife was going to be pissed off at you for coming home late. It was, you that's know, a great, that's a great story in that book, by the way. That's yeah. You know, that you, it was sort of like throwing a pint of haagen in the door these days. You know, you would bring it <laughs> home if you, if you came home, you know, stumbling drunk because you had been someplace you shouldn't have been. I mean, it was Amy, great to, it was great to find instead Amy, of just artifacts. Bring, yeah. Okay. Amy bringing, Amy bringing Tony home some, some, what do you, what would you bring Tony home to, to have him uh, forgive you for being out late and drinking? Oh, that's that's a good question. Tony's always on a diet, so definitely not a Cuban sandwich. <laughs> but you know something? My question. Um, so my husband is Dominican and I'm, I'm very accustomed to the, the, the rhythm of Cuban dining, mm -hmm. which is usually like a big meal in the afternoon and then mm -hmm. something lighter for the evening. Mm -hmm. What when did Cubans on the island eat Cuban sandwiches? Were they like a weekend snack or were they like something you would eat like between lunch and, and like a, a, a light dinner? Like what what was the appropriate? Because I feel like Demi like Cuba, um, Dominicans treat sandwiches like they're not real food. That's that's been my experience. Sandwiches are not real food to, to Dominicans. I think some of that uh, that sentiment, and this is just my armchair, uh, goes back to the idea of the bocadillo, which is a small little bite sized sandwich that doesn't necessarily constitute a whole meal. But you can definitely if you want to follow the roots of it all the way back to Spain, you know, there's a the concept of the sandwich goes at least that far in in being um Uh, a food item, but not necessarily a staple. I, I think that 
I don't know that there was necessarily a hard and fast rule, but I think that it was a primarily a, a, it started as an evening kind of um, item. But it, like I said, it was uh, it was a mixed dough, which means it was a mixture of many different proteins. Everybody wants to act like there's this chiseled in granite uh, ingredient list. And uh, Andy's research shows that there were some really super surprising ingredients that we oh, didn't Oh, go expect. on. Tell yeah. us. Yeah. Well, I, I listened know. to some of them on the last episode, Amy. If you had the, listened to that, you would know. But give so, us some. Give us some. So Jeff. sort of, uh, you know, and and uh, I'll let Carlos pronounce the, the, the Spanish version of it, but sort of a liver pate was part of it. Um, go ahead, yeah, Carlos. We call, that, we call that una carne fría. Yeah. Like, almost like a cold cut. Yeah, that's what your nickname is going to be from now on. Kind of <laughs> um, but then uh, mortadella. Um, and then the surprising thing for me was, you know, everybody gets all up in a twist about the fact that, you know, the Tampa Cuban has Genoa salami on it. And um, Miami clearly is. doesn't. And it's delicious, though, I got to tell you. There you go. And uh, I want to claw up my screen. But on the island, <laughs> on the island, you know, it's a mixto. It was basically... Uh, a mixture of whatever proteins were available, and chorizo was one of them. So the fact is, is that the the as best that we can tell from our research, chorizo was part of the party, and that having salami, you could see that natural evolution as it got to a place where, say, salami was prevalent because of the Sicilians who came to Tampa in the late 1800s and early 1900s to work on the Cuban uh, and to the, uh, the the cigar factories. You could see where somebody would make that that jump or that substitution, but. You know, the, the, there was really no hard and fast mixed dough. Turkey was a big part of it. Um, and we were just amazed by that. But, you know, that was just the way it was. It was a it was a crop that was easy to maintain. It was a high yield kind of bird. You know, um, they weren't they weren't doing, uh, you know, baby duckling on the sandwich. They were using high yield proteins. Right. Um, so, you know, well, I, talk, to I, me, talk to me about that, because I'm curious, the 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 first real mention of, of like turkey on it is like that is in conjunction with new york city in in mm-hmm. the book like that those those terms went together and i remember reading and going oh my god here comes new york well yes credit, and, trying to take credit for the cuban sandwich like yes and no, and you, and I, you and i have had the conversation about this already but you know i i think the other part of it is that people like to think of of one migration pattern like if you were watching a map of birds spreading out over north america you would think oh well there's just two giant arrows and it's not true. They, you know, Tampa was a natural deep water port. So the flow from Key West to Tampa was a natural one. Um, you know, the but people migrated everywhere. And, you know, I, I think nobody would be surprised to say they migrated to New York City. They brought their food with them. Um, you know, no, and, and, New, and New York has, has always been. Uh, has been for several uh, generations of of uh, Cuban exiles a, uh, a, a a port, you know, a port. It's it's Absolutely. a safe harbor. Like Jose Martí spent time there in the late eighteen hundreds. Uh, my great grandfather. Was, was <laughs> your great grandfather, really? Yeah, my great grandfather came from Calabria, and uh, so you know, it's yeah. and then he made his way down to Florida. So people go in all different kinds of directions. Um, you know, you and I have the conversation about. Uh, I don't dispute the fact that it was in New York, not at all because it's a natural migration pattern for people to go and bring their food. But there were probably three dozen newspapers that were able to write about what might be eaten or enjoyed. Whereas somewhere in Tampa or Miami or somewhere in the South might have had fewer 
documentation of it or less right. documentation. Right. But yeah, you know, New York, uh, you know, I'm, I'm right with you. I don't want to give New York anything. <laughs> were they calling uh, it a Cuban sandwich though, or were they calling it the mixto? You know, it was the mixto even in Tampa up until a certain point. And it really wasn't until it crossed over heavily into the Anglo, uh, um, demographic that it sort of commonly became translated as, the Cuban. Um, I know to it was me, the mixto at, at our restaurant and our farthest back, our farthest recipe is 1915. We serve that recipe every day. I, I, to me, it, it rings like, um, like whoever named the California roll, you know, like yeah. this idea that this thing existed in Japan and they brought, they imported it to, to LA and they, and they changed it to like LA flavors and they called it the California roll. And it was like, oh, the birthplace of sushi. No, no. that's not how that works. That's not how it works. That's not no. how it works, TikTok. You know, listen, and, uh, I know that Miami subs did not invent the sub. <laughs> the sub. <laughs> Pit, um, Pitbull was very offended Pitbull at that invented the subs. Hey, I invented the sub in the video. <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent pitbull. I got to give you credit. Oh, yeah, it's a really good pitbull. He's good at impressions. Thank you. you should make him do more. Listen, I I just want to get on record on saying the word scrimp. I, I am so <laughs> so much a fan. I, and your Creole scrimp is impeccable. I have oh, to tell thank you. you thank you. Thank you so much. I, 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 I take scrimp every chance I'll get. I'll guarantee. I'll get That's a tea. really, really great. And both of you are really killing it right now. <laughs> I can go home now. Uh, <laughs> all right. So you know that I am sandwich obsessed. And it, it's no, like you're a sandwich freak. I am a sandwich freak. I am a sandwich freak. Did and, you see his sandwich he, press that he just like got uh, from we've, we've been texting this is what this is i have to confess we've been texting back and forth about press envy mm-hmm. and um i pulled mine out and i threatened to start a tiktok of just doing uh press talk and will it press and just putting various things and crunching it's very letterman-esque uh carlos comes at it from a very refined place and i'm just a matter of physics i just want to press stuff up you just want to squish <laughs> things and make them hot yeah. it, makes, it always makes them better yeah, and and so like that's a part of the the, the the book that I thought that I found interesting was like, all right, when does when does the conversation about pressing it come in, comes into place? Because that doesn't happen to like the fifties, I want to say, or like and the forties. And do you know 50s. why? And 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 I I do know why, and you're gonna tell me. Well, I I think I know if I read correctly that like it's because Miami's bread has mm-hmm. a thinner eggshell crust and doesn't didn't crust cr- crisp the same way, crunch the same way. As like Tampa's La Segunda bread, which mm-hmm. is closest to my to uh, to the actual bread baked in Cuba. Yeah, um, the, um, so the the bread in Tampa. I don't so know wait, they they started cons- pressing they started pressing the sandwiches because the bread wasn't as good. Mm-hmm. There you go. In Miami, as so crunchy it, as so. Crunchy. What happens is the Shade. Tampa bread. The Tampa. Ooh, you know what? It's not shade. It's just fact. So anyway, <laughs> the, uh, look at it. oh wow, that hurts no, no, so no. much. The way he twisted no, it. No, 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 no. The Tampa Ouch. bread, whether you press it or not, is still crusty and yet tender. And back in the day, I have documentation of this. Even at our, like I said at our restaurant, they would put it in ovens, but they wouldn't press it. And it really wasn't until the late fifties, early sixties that the press came into it. I know our owners, our third generation owners used to put stacks of plates on top of the press to get that, that compact kind of profile to it. But it, it really was the Taylor irons and then other implements finally kind of got refined about it, but it was Miami that really brought the pressing to the equation. And, you know, we serve them either way here. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's really about 
compensating for the, you don't want to bite into a sandwich and have it pull. You want to have a, a crisp bite, consistent bite every time. Right. And, you know, pressing allows that. But if you get something that's too spongy, it's going to rip all the ingredients apart and make for a bad, a bad experience. But, you know, you butter the crust and then you press it and you get good results. And, and you know, it makes it makes the Tampa version of it uh, even more decisive of a of a of a chomp. But it definitely uh, it definitely makes it into a, a special thing with the kind of pandagua that you have down there. You know, See, I, I was going to guess. Too. I was going to guess that the reason was because they didn't invent the sandwich press until the fifties. But <laughs> well, they 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 invented the sandwich press. Well, not even I would say invented it, but it became a necessity because it was so widely uh, enjoyed, and it's like the demand met you know what was needed. Uh, like I said, they started out with just tailor presses, just irons. And and then it kind of evolved from there. It, the, what I, what I, it reminds me of is Norman Van Aken tells a story about when he was a young carny uh, working on uh, working on a, a, a carnival, those moving right. carnivals, and um, he would he would see the Mexican uh, workers that would that would come and help set up the carnivals that traveled with them, and they would bring um, uh, t- uh, tightly wrapped burritos from home, mm-hmm. um, and they were like chorizo torito, uh, and they would just like keep them on them tightly wrapped and kind of foil and whatever, and it would stay warm. Mm-hmm. And, and I f- kind of feel the same way about the Cuban sandwich. Like once you, once you began to toast it, it becomes a meal versus just like a cold snack, like a thing that you eat at lunch and whatever, it becomes like this, there's more ceremony to it, right? Like there's more richness to it. There's m- this idea that like the cheese melts and the, the ham, like if you like how Versailles does it, they grill it. Uh, ham side, ham, yeah, open face, ham side up. And so when they bring the grill down, it kind of caramelizes the ham and then they put it together and finish pressing it. And there's like that changes the sandwich. That really did change it completely from like a little finger, like finger food for ladies, you know, at a at a kind of like a tea time uh, to like this uh, to this more egalitarian food, you know, which, which well, it had to move away from being a, a human fuel for cigar workers to being a restaurant item and how, how, how do you charge more? Well, you do this to it or you do that to it. You know, um, Swiss cheese is not the easily most easily melted when you pack it in with other stuff. So it's got to get to a point where it reaches a heat level that makes it, uh, less of a cheese experience and more of a creamy cheese experience. Um, you know, it kind of separates those layers and kind of differentiates itself between the, the, the saltiness of the, of the, of the ham and the, the mojo and the pork, and then also the mustard and the pickles and, and then the fat of the salami in Tampa. You know what this sandwich sounds like though? This sandwich sounds like a leftovers sandwich, like something like <laughs> at the end of the week, you take all your leftovers, you put it between some bread and then you're like, well, oh, I don't doubt, I don't doubt that it's sort of like, you know, Monday soup, you know, what was left over from the weekend kind of thing. It was, again, I, I, I go back to the point where it was literally a mixture of what you had and living on an island where you had a lot of pigs and mm-hmm. some poultry. Oh, we'll take this, we'll take this, we'll take this. And then it just sort of became codified, especially after the revolution. Can I just say how much I'm enjoying sandwich talk today? Like, I'm really like, I feel, <laughs> You're in your I, feel I feel self-actualized today. You feel, you feel seen. Yeah, because, I, this I, is the church of sandwichology right this now. Is, we're, this is, we're, we're, this, is yeah, mass. this is, this is mass. This is this gospel is mass. right here. <laughs> I, no, uh, but you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting was that like at the turn of the century, if you were eating something that had multiple proteins in it, 
like that was big. That was like that was the original gold wrap steak. That was the original uh, putting. You know what you had if you had you know mortadella or like a liver pate and ham and pork. You know and all these things on one bite. Like you had to go source all these different kinds of meats. Like that's that's very much a baller move. If you think about it, how you make sandwiches at home. And just just you setting up quote unquote mise en place. If you have, there's a certain point where if you have too many jars and too many other things, you feel like, oh, I I don't know if we can afford this. You know what I mean? There's like mm-hmm. there's something to it that it's like I'm really treating myself. This is a this is a meal. It's not just a sandwich. Um, but yeah, especially back in those days when when sourcing of ingredients was a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, you can really understand why it first appealed to. Um, the upper class and then sort of found its way down as being utilitarian and then kind of moved back up again a little bit. Um, you know, I love the fact that, that there are still people messing with it around the world. You know, um, you and I discussed that there's a place called the Tampa Sandwich Bar in Seoul, South Korea. They just moved into a brand new what? location. Yep. yep. So they took, you're going to love this. So they took their logo from the city of Tampa's Parks and Recreation logo. Awesome. <laughs> and I found these people because they, awesome. they started following our restaurant on Instagram. And I found that they were doing American comfort food, but they were adding a little bit. And if you look on their menu, they do a Cuban sandwich with kimchi, which sounds oh. exotic. But when you look at mustard and pickles and, oh, that's how you get to the sour. Yeah, um, I was going to say that sounds delicious. So. After uh, after I wrote about them, they came and competed at the Cuban Sandwich Festival here in Tampa. Won two years in a row as the people's favorite. You know, oh it's, it's like you got you see that it is it is an evolving kind of uh, uh, menu item, and I love that. I love to see how people take this bit and twist it and, and play with it. And um, so I was going to ask, like, what's something that you you think that just shouldn't be on one of these sandwiches, or like, but. I feel like you've just said nothing there. <laughs> there's no I, limit. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that I'm not, I will tell you, I am not a strict as a member, Orthodox, of, the, as a member of the sandwich freaks of America. I will tell you that I am not a strict constructionist. Um, I, I don't get all, I, in a, I, don't, I don't get nuts. If people put lettuce and tomato on it, if that's how you like it, that's how you like it. It's not how I like it, but if it makes you enjoy the sandwich, go for it. Would I put it down as doctrine? No, I wouldn't. But if you like it, you like it. And I, I, I told Carlos this, that arguing about sandwiches is such a first world problem because yeah. I can tell you where they're not arguing about it. And it's on the island of Cuba, right? Now. <laughs> this is the truth. Where you will be hard pressed to find a Cuban sandwich. When I went years right. ago, you that didn't exist. That You might find concept. it in a hotel where all the American tourists are. Did it not exist, it Carlos, or you just couldn't find it? No, was no, it a it, thing that, that they didn't, was it not on anybody's radar? Yeah, no, it really, I mean, I was, I went to El Floridita, which is the, the restaurant that they, the bar really where they supposedly Hemingway hung out. They got a big a bronze statue of him sitting in the corner and, um, you know, it's, it's restaurant and bar. And you would think if any place is going to have it because of the influx of tourists, this place is. Right. And they looked at me like I had two heads, the Cuban sandwich. They're like, what is that? And I was like, I don't know. I'd ended up. Uh, like I told you, Jeff, like I, the, the thing that I ate the most in Cuba was bad pizza, like bad pizza with very poor, like poor ingredients. And it was like that was the national food of Cuba. Think about all the ingredients on a Cuban sandwich and trying to find that on the island right now no on way. a consistent basis. It doesn't exist. Just even yeah. the bread alone is hard. Yeah. 
So Jeff, tell me a little bit about your background because I know we talked we <laughs> talked about this a little bit before, but like you came to food writing like some of my favorite people, which is very circuitously, you know. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, it was. I grew up in a restaurant family, so it's always been part of my life. You know, I'm when I was little, they would pull me out of bed to come down to the bar and sing Happy Birthday to drunks in my pajamas. So it's. <laughs> Good Once times. that's in your blood, and, good and times. I, I still have relatives who own who own restaurants, and uh, so it's always been there. But yeah, I I was um, as you mentioned, I I, I kind of did the whole thing where you work through small papers, and eventually you wind up in Alaska, and then you come back to Florida, and blah blah blah, bounce around. I was at the Palm Beach Post at one point, um, but I uh, I started food writing out of necessity in Tampa. and didn't really want to do it. I wanted to be an editor, and that after about the third try, the editor goes why don't you do it? And I go, okay, I'll do it. And I just happened to be at the, at the point in Tampa where, um, the, the food life exploded in the early two thousands and it coincided with food network and all the availability of groceries and ingredients that, that people hadn't seen before. But I was here at the exact right time and the right place for it. Amen. Same, pretty much the same. Yeah. Uh, I, I, tell me about what was your family's restaurant? Did they have a bar? Where was that? Yeah. So my great grandfather built a hotel and motel on Passa Grill, which is in the southern tip of uh, St. Pete Beach. And uh, he had the Keystone Hotel and motel and lounge. And uh, my aunt worked the restaurant and my grandmother worked the hotel. And now my family owns the Hurricane Restaurant, which is this uh, shrine to the grouper sandwich right on the beach. And, uh, so I was the first bus boy at the hurricane back in late 1979, I think. Wow. And, uh, you know, uh, just, you, you know what the smell of a dishwasher food trap smells like from a thousand miles away after you've spent that time, you know, you know what, you know what the bar well with the spongy scrubbers smells like. Um, and it's just, I, I love, I can't imagine living, in any other way, you know, and being able to tell food stories still by, by what I do is, uh, is an amazing experience, but the Cuban sandwich kind of came in along those ways. I lived in St. Pete. Cuban sandwich was not a thing in St. Pete where it was in Tampa. And that's only a half hour car ride. Um, and then when we got back to uh, Tampa, I kind of rediscovered it again in the early two thousands and then started writing about it. Cool. Yeah. What 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 taught you to love writing, or or who taught you that you were any good at it, and that's something that you wanted to do? I'm still asking that question. I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate your kind compliments every day. I, you know, it, I I think it was um, a combination of things. Um, I, you know, I always tell people you learn how to write by reading good writing, mm-hmm. and you find the voice that kind of sounds like yours. You kind of do a little writing karaoke for a while until you find your own voice, yep. and then before you know it, you have a style and you have a passion. And, um, you know, I, I, I will admit that, uh, I went close to Hunter S Thompson and then backed away. I went close to, uh, Fran Lebowitz and I backed away, you know, you have these little dalliances with voices that kind of connect with you. Um, but, uh, at a certain point I, I was lucky enough to kind of, uh, have an editor or two who let me write in my own voice and let people find me. And, you know, once you do that, you create a little bonfire. Not everybody digs that bonfire, but the people who do really do. And that's really what happened with the coverage of food in Tampa in the early 2000s was people started to find their identity again in Tampa. It wasn't a new thing. In Tampa, food was the first visitor attraction here. That's why people came here was to go to Ybor City in the Latin District. That's the first thing that they marketed the city for. And, uh, and so it, it went to sleep for a while and then it came back with a vengeance in the past 25 years. 
Is that what the the restaurant that you currently um, do the the marketing and the um, that that was part of that whole um, that whole movement? The yeah, the original one was you know founded in as a saloon in 1903. You know we're in Ebor City, and the saloon was a, a sort of what they would call a um, you know like a, a a little tasting room today for the Florida Brewing Company. And the Florida Brewing Company's co-owner was some guy named Vincente Ebor. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him, but he, uh, you know, Ebor City was a, a cigar town, and they needed beer, and he would make his own beer, and he had to have his own saloons. And then one of the co-owners was the family owner who bought him out and created the Columbia Restaurant in 1905. And, and, and so, and I, and I, I want to stop because you think about a restaurant, you're like, oh, it's a place where you go and sit down and whatever. But the Columbia is like, it's it feels like. A part of a city block, you know, it's it, huge. It's a full it's city block. Sto- it's two stories. Is it a full city block? Yep. All right, full city block, mm-hmm. two stories, yep. Spanish food, yep. shows. It's like, it, it really is like, it's an institution. In it's an town. immersive experience. And it's yeah. um, it's it's hard to draw a parallel. You know, it's sort of like, what if Versailles mashed up with, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, yeah. it's, just, and a, the, it's a reflection of the family who is a mixture of Spanish and Cuban, you know, um, uh, one of the founders was born in Matanzas and, and so the, you know, their, their menu is a mashup, just like the Cuban sandwich is a mashup. Um, Would it be like Casa, Casa Panza meets Versailles, Carlos, like a, like a Spanish and Cuban kind of well, mashup? It, there's a, there's like a performance aspect to it, right? Cause mm-hmm. you guys, there, there's also like flamenco. No, we have flamenco shows flamenco every show, night, yeah. uh, five nights a week. Yeah. So it's a little bit like. Amy, what's the place on the beach? Is it Mangoes? Which is the... Yeah, uh, Mangoes, yeah. but that's right, like so, Caribbean... All right. So imagine trying that and Versailles together. So like performance and big and grandeur. And, even and the as, even as grand as Versace Mansion. You know, I mean, they, the yeah. family approaches oh, yeah, art, art and hospitality and entertainment and flavors as one holistic thing, even music. You know, the third generation uh, owners were concert violinists and a concert... Uh, Juilliard trained pianist and that's how they they kept the Columbia alive during those days because Ybor City was dying and they were provide entertainment shows so um, you know the thing about it is is that it's the Columbia and Tampa are so intertwined that their histories kind of are simultaneously highs and lows but the Tampa was uh, a food town back in the day it was uh, a huge coffee roasting town back in the early 1900s because the they poured cafecito at the table when you're rolling the cigars. So you think about, oh, it smelled like bread and pork and coffee and all these great aromas in Ybor City back in the end people, unfortunately. But, you know, the Columbia is so old that it, it was the first air-conditioned dining room in Tampa, you know, in 1935. Oh, and wow. So Did they have any ventanitas up there? So we had one. And um, up until about the 60s, um, and there was a reason for it, um, partially because to get around Jim Crow laws. And and so on 7th Avenue, there was a window where you could watch uh, Alonchero making the the Cuban sandwiches in the window. He was wearing a bow tie. Um, And, uh, you know, you could watch the whole process they made. I think it was 400 a day uh, and then 700 on weekends. And, um, you know, it was it was a linchpin because it started as a small cafe that was male only. You know, it didn't become uh, female friendly until prohibition um, when you could actually feel safe for uh, and women were allowed to go into establishments. 
Um, so, you know, you, so you it was like the wild things. west before, like Tampa was kind of wild oh, westy. I think that that's putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, you, well, you so- talk about Bolita and all kinds of, uh, organized, uh, crime and things like that. And you're, you're talking about the early days of Tampa. You're talking about some of the not so early days of Tampa. Right. Yeah. The, no, South Florida is still full. I think of, uh, it's still full of those Jim Crow era law buildings. And like, sure. if you, if you turn on that scope, as you look around the city, you see it, uh, like the la- the world's last remaining Royal castle, which was like, you know, Miami's version of, uh, you know the the Miami born version of a, of a McDonald's. white castle. That's like a right. white, castle. Oh, white, white castle, yeah. And they have a window on the side. And I remember asking the owner who was the who was who was black, and he's the person who integrated, whose presence by being by being in inside the restaurant was the person who integrated the white castle restaurants. I was I asked him about the window, and he tells me it was a Jim Crow era thing because that mm-hmm. same restaurant where he that he now owns, he couldn't sit in at one time, but he keeps the window. He's like as a reminder sure. of like. What, what that well, Jackie Robinson came in, they, you know, in Tampa in the early days was a spring training home for the Yankees and people would come through and Jackie Robinson came through with the Dodgers and, you know, our owner um, provided for him. And at a time when that wasn't really frowned upon, but, you know, the, the family who owns our restaurant was discriminated against because they were Hispanic. And so, you know, the big Gasparilla parade that we do every year, they weren't allowed to be in the crew. So they created their own crew and they created it at the restaurant. So it's, you know, there's, uh, it's not a very clean history in any Florida city. Um, but the great thing about Tampa is that unlike a lot of places that have, you know, their Cuban neighborhood or their black neighborhood or, you know, their, their Indian neighborhood or whatever you want to call it, this was really because of the, of the cigar factories and assimilation and immediate assimilated city. Uh, they all married and intermingled, um, you know, I think you could look without drawing too fine a point as the Cuban sandwich as a real metaphor for that mingling. Um, there's a lot of people who, including a man named Andrew Tambuzo, who's a third generation Tampa butcher, who comes from Sicilian and Cuban uh, parents. Mm-hmm. He doesn't call his a Cuban sandwich. He calls it a mixto because he uses a mixture of both cuisines, spices and techniques to make his sandwich. And because it's reflective of what his history is. Um you know, and it's all, and it's also like I'm guessing that's a twenty dollar sandwich, or close it, to it. It's really not. Oh, and, it's you not. know, no, I mean, he makes his own mustard, Carlos. He makes his own pickles. I mean, oh, it, wow. could be, it could. He's be not out there. Pickles. He's not out there making. He could. Yeah, yeah he could. But he's uh, he's he's not making. You know, Swiss cheese is the thing that nobody talks about in any of the equation. That's right. Except Swiss until cheese. You, well, now there's a guy we found who's in the book who's in New Jersey where there's a, an enormous pocket of Cuban population, and his his phrase is Finlandia or nada. <laughs> I like some, o muerte. I like exactly. I I like a guy who gets nuts about Swiss cheese as a as a definer um, for a yeah. sandwich. Yeah. Um. Uh, so so real briefly, what has the reception been to the book so far? I mean, because it doesn't. Really they haven't run him out of town yet. So but yeah, I know, and so that's that's good. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Open minded. There's a story that came out about a year ago before the book was anywhere near close. And we, we did an interview where um, it, it was a little not well received. And it was a problem because they didn't have a book to read to see what the documentation was. Right. I think anybody who wants to just read a headline can get nuts about anything. Hence the comments underneath your story about, well, let's talk about Arepas. And that's, you know, let's right. talk about Pisco and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. People like to fight about food. I love it. It's a very first world problem. Um, <laughs> Wait, people like know. to fight on the Internet? 
Yeah, people something. like to fight about food on the uh, internet too. I think well, like people okay. like to have food fights, and then you add in, uh, you know, ethnicity, backgrounds, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But you know, it's not really this. The book doesn't come out until September second officially, and it's already been you know been delivered in pre orders. So I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. You know, I think the natural thing is to want to do the Miami versus Tampa thing. Um, I think your story was illustrative as the need to drag New York into it, even though it might be maybe a couple lines in an entire book. Um, but it, I understand why that is because people like to feel proud of their food. And I've, you know, as you and I have talked about, the, the feeling that people have about the Cuban sandwich in Miami is different than what it is in Tampa. And Tampa, it's, it's a historical thing. And in Cuba, it has so many more dimensions, even though they're similar to those in Tampa and those those angles exist in Tampa. It's so much more recent as a, as a um, an identifier that <clears throat> it's almost like you're arguing about two different sandwiches because it's two different points of entry in the conversation. Right. Um, you know, you're going to find Cuban sandwiches almost everywhere. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that those two places because of their natural proximity and also a lot of families who live in one place have relatives in the other, um, you know, people will argue about anything, but, uh, you know, I think anybody who reads the book and gets to the end of the book and thinks, well, they did a terrible job researching that. <laughs> I think, well, I gotta say, I've never had any like arguments about a peanut butter and jelly. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so I do know, think that I think that no, this is a valid. No, no, I would disagree. You probably have crust or no crust. Oh, uh, strawberry, they, strawberry or grape, strawberry or grape, Jeff or Skippy. Come on. Whatever's in the refrigerator. Those, that's the answer. Crunchy Whatever's in the fridge. Crunchy or smooth will wipe out a room faster than any Cuban sandwich ever could. That's true. Texture. That's no, true. but and crunchy the, peanut the butter is good. In- no, no. Crunchy peanut butter is, uh, it's what you're supposed to eat with your scoop it out the jar and eat it with a spoon. That's what that's for. Is that it? Okay. That's not for yeah. sandwiches. Oh, okay. So you're saying that I, if I can extrapolate here, crunchy peanut butter is the Tampa Cuban bread of peanut butter. Whereas the smooth is more Miami. No, I'm saying crunchy peanut butter is the mayonnaise of Cuban sandwiches. Which oh, means wow. You don't put wow. it on. If you don't put it on there. That it doesn't belong. She, she threw a Molotov quickly. cocktail into the conversation. <laughs> you take crunchy peanut butter and you wow. throw in some uh, Nestle Toll House morsels and you eat that and then you eat it straight from the jar. That's the only thing you're going to do with crunchy peanut butter. Amy wow. brought the violence. I don't. Amy I don't hate that idea though. What, what if I put What if I put pineapple on a buddy's pizza? What happens? What I don't think I would talk universe? to you anymore. <laughs> what well, happens yeah, to the universe? Yeah, the other thing I'll tell you is that I think that that people. Um, are going to believe what they want to believe regardless of a book. Um, you know, we were doing it for for research purposes, but also for, you know, storytelling purposes. Um, but, you know, I, I will say this. It's sort of like, you know, I know Andy was quoted uh, as saying that Miami is the capital of the Cuban sandwich, and I think that's easy to say. Um, you know, I look at it sort of like, well, you know, uh, New York City was the capital of the United States at one point. Now it's Washington was Philadelphia at one point. Now it's Washington, but I don't think anybody would say anything negative about New York being the heartbeat of it. Um, Tampa is a capital is a capital. Miami is uh, a much more uh, um, energized conversation about it 
Tampa is much more about civic pride and civic identity. But I think it's on the rise because Tampa's profile has risen so dramatically in the past 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And and tell me about Tampa. Tampa's changed quite a bit, man. Like the, again, I went there a couple, maybe a, a couple months ago yeah. and found that it, it really um, blossomed. I mean, like I was in the neighborhood and there was like a coffee roaster and like. Do they and, have you know, a Detroit style pizza though? That's the question. They do. Where? What? See, like, you got to come see. Oh, I will. Now, definitely. There, so what happened is, is that there was, there was a, a, there's a little bit of a food revolution going on in the past 20 years. Can't believe it's been 20 years, but yeah, we're getting on, getting on close to that. Um, where it started out with craft cocktails and there was a USBG group. And then that begat um, the craft brewing scene, which lit on fire here because of Cigar City oh, Brewing right. ran right up I-4 to Jacksonville and kind of spread out from there. But that was, part of a previous history because there are two breweries in downtown Tampa back in the thirties. You know, this is not a new thing, but um, you know, Tampa found its food voice, found that people like to live through their food here. And then now really any big project, like they spent through, they're spending $3 billion on the airport to redo it. Um, their first phase was to add local brands, local food brands. And they started with five and now they have 90. Wow. And and that was a huge thing because it was like, oh, OK, I remember writing a column for the Tribune at the time when we had the Republican convention here. And I said, it's so sad that the last taste of Tampa people will have is a Chili's two. Oh, that's just wrong. That so wrong. the Columbia was one of the first five that, that got a place in it. Now we have four restaurants uh, in the airport um, to the point where Tampa uh, before COVID was issuing passports for you to go freely between airsides so you could eat. Um, oh, you know, so, so we, every big, every big project, whether it's a stadium, whether it's a new development, the new water street development, which is a $3 billion neighborhood they're creating from scratch in downtown. They started before they ever did any kind of turning of shovels. They started with an outdoor, um, shipping container food court with all the Avengers of food there. And that I was going to be my cool. next question. How many food halls does Tampa have? <laughs> have you, guys, you, have you guys gone through the food hall phase yet? You know, I think we're still going through it. Um, okay. You know, the 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 great thing is, um, you know, you have uh, you have the hall on Franklin, which went in and out. There's one in Midtown now. Um, there's uh, you know a number of them, and it's the best part is is that it's a lot of uh, first time brick and mortar for people who have either been in food trucks or had hobbies or you know building businesses, as well as some established brands. But you know, Tampa likes to live through its food. It just does, and it's uh, it's not it's not like other places. It is its own thing because it has its own food history. Even something like the Devil Crab, the Tampa Devil Crab, which did not go to Miami because the blue crabs were here in Tampa Bay. You know, the little crab chalau that they put up in, in Cuban breadcrumbs is a very very Tampa food stuff. The schiacciata is a very Tampa Italian food stuff. So we have our own food ways. You know? my, my my buddy Rob used to live uh, in, a, in a rented house right on an inlet. Uh, uh, into the Tampa, into Tampa Bay. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he would just throw, he'd park his boat. He got a boat, like a little, a little thing in, he would throw a crab trap be out behind his house. And every day he'd get home, he'd lift up the trap. He'd take some crabs out and he would eat crabs like a guy from like Pennsylvania. So Absolutely. Rob Farley, he, I mean, you could just kill crabs, you know, it's like, you just well, have crab every day as, yeah, as often as you want. The Sicilians in Tampa used to tie chicken bones and chicken necks to a string. 
screw the trap. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And literally put it in the water. And about five minutes later, you come up, you got a little string of crab pearls. That is genius. Crab pearls. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, uh, what what people don't get via audio or even now video is that you are a giant of a man. Uh, And, uh, and I was, (laughs) I remember there's this picture of me and Jeff, like we're hugging and I look like his son. Uh, and so I'm, I'm wondering, like, actually, you, you don't. My son is taller than me. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, when you went to go write about restaurants, especially yeah. at the time where, you know, where things were still anonymous before the Internet, like right. you're what? You're like six, seven, right? Six, six five, six, six. Yeah. Six, six. And you'd come into the restaurant. That's a pretty identifiable. Character. So I, just to correct you a little bit, not to not to tweak, but I was not a food critic and okay. I had a choice. Um, I only had so many words for delicious um, and it was, it was the difference. <laughs> I can between, appreciate that. I yeah, appreciate it was, that. It was really the difference between writing about this world or this world. And I mm-hmm. basically adopted it as I want to go write about every place food touches. So it was the infield of the Daytona 500. It was in the crew cabin of the space shuttle discovery. It was everywhere I could find it. Um, you know, and the approach I took was not everybody digs politics or crime or his business or sports, but everybody eats. Let's go find it. And it was just the best way to live life, telling those stories. Um, but I never tried to be anonymous because it was really a, a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I and I enjoyed being upfront with people about who I was, especially at places as you know, Carlos. You go into and it's the first time they've ever had any kind of media exposure, and you have to be professional and say, "Listen, you need to be ready because when I write about this, people are going to read it and they're going to come." Mm-hmm. And and that was a, a huge responsibility, but one I absolutely adored. Yeah, I, I think that that's that's my favorite part of the job is uh, the, any kind of restaurant criticism or, or restaurant reviewing. I find uh, tedious at times. Um, I, I find that it's much more interesting to write about the reason the the reason for being for that restaurant. You know, food is such there. an on ramp to a better life. And yeah. so many ways, even the people who started out back, they had a dream, had no idea it would be this. Um, but, you know, it's comparable to every mom and pop or anybody who starts a cupcake shop or has a food truck. It is an on-ramp to a new life. And that that story will never, it's not a food story. Anytime you can display that, if it just happens to be about food, even better. But um, I, I love the, telling those stories because they're everywhere. Cool. Well, Jeff, before... We let you go after such a fruitful and uh, uh, sandwich conversation. I'm still singed from Amy's comment, by the way. I'm just ah, I'm smoking crunchy, over here. Crunchy, peanut butter, peanut, peanut butter. butter. Wow, peanut butter war. That is brutal. So no, we, we it, got, it, it, we it was fine. You, we we got asked. I didn't realize I had such Amy. strong opinions about peanut butter. You you yeah, showed you, me. You really did. You really came out I opened right there. You up. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, I would never argue about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then you made me realize, yes. I would. However, I don't yeah. think a peanut butter and jelly sandwich deserves a book. I think the Cuban oh, sandwich disagree. does. Now, now we're going to fight. Yes. You, one of the best stories I read in the last couple <laughs> of years um, is this guy who writes for ESPN who wrote a story about the NBA's secret food, which was the peanut butter sa- mm-hmm. peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I can't think of that guy's name right now. Uh, but he wrote, like, if you do ESPN, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you'll find it. And it's fantastic. And it's about how, like, it's it's the power bar uh, in yeah. NBA That teams. makes sense. It's got everything you need in it. Yeah. Except no. that you should not put chunks. <laughs> oh, it's 
God, this is I like how your mouth kind of makes the word chunk. Chunk. Chunky peanut butter. I don't no. want no. I don't want no chunky scrimp. I don't want no chunky scrimps. Uh, the scrimps all chunky. It's pretty chunky. It's not good. It can't be good. Peanut you know, butter is too chunky for my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> Oh, Amy, what are we going to uh, get Jeff to play Kiss, Mary Kill with? I feel like we can always go to Cafecito. Oh, we could get like Marcelito. three variations of the Cuban sandwich. Well, you know he's going to pick the one Oh, he's going to pick the Tampa one. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Throw that one out. Throw that one out. So a Miami Cuban. You might be surprised, but go ahead. Okay. A Miami Cuban. No, I no, might no, be surprised. No, 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 no. now I got to leave it in. No, I love it. No, because I will tell you this. Um, I, I'm... I am a big fan of anytime anybody messes with it. So, like I said, I'm not a strict constructionist. However you're going to do it is how you're going to do it. There's one that is just as drippy and messy and soggy that I found on the outskirts of Tampa that I, I think about it now and I could like openly weep au jus. And, <laughs> and so, so, you know, picking one of the three, it would be like picking toothpicks. Do, it, do the regular, the Carlos. Do the cafecito. The cafecito? Okay. Yeah, how yeah. about that? Uh, so, we, you know, the, the, the standard go-to is cafecito. Croquetas and pastelitos. So you got to kiss, Mary kill one. You got to kiss, Mary kill them. And what, what do you think? Cafecito. I'm sorry. Cafe, I have to write this down. down. Okay. Cafecito, croquetas. And pastelitos. Mm. Do they call, they don't call them pastelitos, which makes me mad in Tampa. Well, it tells you a little bit about what the culture, What do they call right? them, Carlos? They call them turnovers or they call them. Uh, what? The, 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 the Some cheese. people call them that. Some people don't. Guava well, cheese. No, you know, we don't, we don't call them turnovers. We call them guava cheese. Guava that's cheese. Like, well, that was a la segunda, but you can get a pastelito that's not guava different. cheese. Well, the cheese one they put in its own category. They call it un quesito. Mm-hmm. They call it un quesito. A, a cheese pastelito. They just call it un quesito. Which I was like, what is happening here? I mean, it well, was see, good. Now was I have to delicious. learn new stuff. Thanks, Tampa. Well, I think it goes to. I I've, I've said <laughs> wow. this before. Like like L.A. L.A. also calls them turnovers because, and I think it's because of how infused. Miami culture is with, I mean, Cuban culture is in Miami and that like you can name something, what it was called on the island and everybody right. everybody gets get it. it versus having to acquiesce to whatever the local thing is. But so what do you think? Pastelito, croqueta, cafecito. Okay, I will marry the pastelito. Oh, wow. Oh, Look Carlos, that. is this our first marriage of pastelito I ever in be. the history of this show? I think so. Why am, the pastelito? I, I Why that weak. love? I am weak. I am weak. I'm a bread man. I'm weak. Oh, um, I can, see, I can. I am a bread locust, so I can definitely. I can empathize with that. Uh, if they were out of, uh, if they were out of those at La Segunda that day, it was my fault. I could eat them <laughs> all day long. Arraso. See, yeah. um, and I would. I. I will tell you that uh, cafecito. I'm a coffee man, and I will drink coffee. Um, I, if I could do it in my sleep, I would. So I would kiss cafecito. Which leaves the Poco Ghetto, but it's only the only reason is, and you know, you and I both know Seth Gonzalez, the burger beast, and his mm-hmm. Croquetta Blues. I have massive respect for it. It's just not what I grew up with. It's been a late in life appreciation. I love croquetas, but if I had to pick one of the three, I could live without a croquetta. I cannot live without coffee. And my God, I would not want to live without possibly. I respect that. That I is our too. very that is a very unique choice. That we is, have man. never had someone. And a very oh, so strong, very strong emotional connection to it. I like yes. it a lot. Yep. Well, Jeff, we appreciate so much that you having taken this time to talk with us. And we wish you so much good luck on the book because I really do think it's a, 
it's a great read. I really thank you I just, very much, Carlos. And I mean, I, I the support that you've shown is just enormous. I, I just hope people uh, find an appreciation for the sandwich that they never really knew before, because something that has that much depth, I think, is uh, is something to behold and and enjoyed and and shared with others. Good deal. Well, thank you. I Jeff. look forward to the next one about the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Let's collaborate on this. Let's collaborate. Yeah. Definitely. Co-author Amy Reyes. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. Jeff. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Thanks out. I could talk to Jeff forever. Oh, man. He's got a lot to say about sandwiches. Yes, he you does. Got, this is this, the church of sandwichology. Yeah, he's, for a, sure. he's a bishop. He's a mm-hmm. bishop in the church. He's definitely, definitely, he's handing out communion. Does it does it change your opinion about like what you want on your Cuban sandwich? Like does it does it like make you interested in putting other things on it? Yeah, no, I actually now I'm curious. I've I've never had anything but a Miami Cuban sandwich. So like the idea of putting kimchi on it to me sounds really good. And then um Somebody I've told never me they make one in Montana that's got like bratwurst on it. Like Damn. as the third meat. Like as the third. Well, you know, that sounds like that sounds like some real Michigan type of stuff, because I don't ever eat bratwurst until I go to Michigan, like ever. Right. Put some put some scrapple on it. If you're in uh, what is it, uh, (laughs) Pennsylvania or Ohio, put some scrapple on that Cuban sandwich. I I think that it's a question of like access, like what's available. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I think that that's kind of the takeaway from that. Like, right. So I would eat your local meat that you can. what, What extra local meat can you put on there? Yeah, what can you chop up? Oh, Jeff, stone Jeff, crab. Stone crab. Jeff just mentioned stone crab in the chat. We have a little chat here. I would, <laughs> <laughs> I would not. I would Come on, kind of like a, kind of like a, like a seafood, like a crab melt kind of thing. A no, I don't want to work. I don't want to work yeah. hard. Yeah, if you got. <laughs> well, crab no, assuming that. one assumes that the crab was removed from the shell. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. For sure. Well, somebody has to do that for me because I'm not making that sandwich. She's not doing that. She's not doing that. <laughs> Amy, that feels like, like a show. A show. <laughs> Definitely. Now I'm going to go make myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm, I'm going to go buy a Cuban sandwich right now. Like I'm going to dedicate it to it's, Jeff. It's one o'clock and I'm really hungry and I don't feel like cooking anything. I'm going to get a Latin America Cuban sandwich right now. All right. Well, okay. I'm going to go eat my leftover Vice City pizza, actually. Oh, because you can eat it cold and it's still good. Yeah, that sounds pathetic. But okay. Okay. <laughs> Get out of here, white girl stomach. Uh. <laughs>